The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Rachel McDonald. I'm a registered nurse and clinical consultant with Coloplast. Dr. Tamara Lewis is a private practice urologist at Comprehensive Urologic Care in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Dr. Lewis received her BA in biology from Luther College in 1994, and she obtained her medical doctorate in 1999 from the University of Iowa College of Medicine. In 2005, Dr. Lewis completed her surgical and urology residencies at the University of Nebraska, and then went on to complete a fellowship in female urology and voiding dysfunction at Metro Urology in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. She was among the first group of urologists to receive board certifications in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Lewis's professional interests include management of incontinence, voiding dysfunction, bladder prolapse, and urinary tract infections. She is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, member of the American Urological Association, the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine and Urogenital Reconstruction, the Society of Women in Urology, and the Large Urology Group Practice Association. She is past president of the Chicago Urologic Society. Dr. Lewis has been an invited speaker or presenter for numerous events on topics including overactive bladder, hematuria, contemporary management of urinary tract infections, and women in urology. To set the foundation for our discussion today, could you please explain the term urinary incontinence? So urinary incontinence is the involuntary leakage of urine, and for the purpose of the discussion today, that usually has to be bothersome to the patient. Okay, and walk us through the different types of incontinence, and I guess specific to the female population. So typically the types of incontinence would be stress incontinence, which is leakage associated with coughing, laughing, activity, sometimes even change in positions. That's a mechanical issue. And then the other type would be overactive bladder or urge incontinence, urgency, frequency, sometimes leakage associated with that. And that's more of a functional problem. And how do you approach your treatment plan for incontinence with this female population? Regardless of, of the type of incontinence, we start off with the same type of evaluation. Um, we want to do a good history to determine what's triggering the incontinence, how bothersome is it, when did it start, and then you want to do a focused exam to look at some uh, patient factors that could be contributing to the incontinence. Once you have that information, I use avoiding diary to help quantify what the patient is drinking, how often she's using the bathroom, how much her bladder holds. That gives me a lot of helpful information as well. And then we work on some conservative strategies. Um, one of the uh, very important first-line strategies, regardless of the type of incontinence, uh, is an assessment of the patient's pelvic floor muscle function. Uh, that's important for stress incontinence because that provides the passive support to the urethra, which helps to keep the urine in the bladder. 
that's also important for overactive bladder because that's where the on and off switch for the bladder is. And a lot of women just don't have a very good awareness of their pelvic floor muscles. That's relation to uh, childbearing. Um, some women have had pelvic surgeries in the past and all of those factors contribute just either to a lack of awareness or lack of strength of the pelvic floor muscles. And so evaluation with a trained specialist to learn how to identify and how to use those muscles appropriately um, is critical to whatever else we do beyond that. So I utilize a lot of physical therapy with great success for incontinence. I also think it's important to look at behavioral factors. What are the patients drinking? Are you drinking a lot of things that are bladder irritants? If so, your bladder may not like that very much. And, and those are some behavioral changes that patients can make. You can control what goes in, but I think if I can give a patient some pointers as to what they might want to drink and when, that will affect how their bladder functions. If someone's getting up at night a lot to go to the bathroom, we, we look at um, what are they drinking before they go to bed? And those are modifiable factors. There are also some contributing um, things that aren't related to the bladder. Constipation can be a big contributing factor to urinary incontinence. It also can impact some of the treatment options that we offer beyond that. So asking some questions about bowel regimen and then working on a proper management strategy for that is very important as well. If your initial plan of care does not alleviate the symptoms, what other strategies do you consider? Well, after trying conservative strategies, then I think it's important to stratify which type of incontinence is more bothersome. Is it stress incontinence or is it overactive bladder? If it's overactive bladder, the next treatment option we consider would be medications. There are a couple of classes of medications that are utilized for overactive bladder. Um, they're anticholinergic medications and they're beta-3 adrenergic medications. The purpose of both of those is to is essentially to try to relax the bladder, to give a better bladder capacity, to give more time to get to the bathroom, to reduce, to reduce the urgency and leakage that's associated with that. Medications do have side effects, and it's important to have a discussion about those side effects and to try to tailor the medication therapy to a patient's uh, other uh, health concerns. I think from a practical standpoint, um, what insurance will cover and what insurance doesn't cover may play a role in what patients ultimately elect to do. Uh, but a trial of medications would be the next step. And usually I would try one class of medications. Depending on relief and side effects, I may go on to try a second class of medications. But medications won't manage all overactive bladder. And for patients who've tried a couple of different medications, then we consider doing what I call advanced or third-line therapies for overactive bladder. And that's going to be either using neuromodulation um, to target the bladder or doing bladder injection therapy. So briefly, neuromodulation can be delivered in a couple of different forms. There's a peripheral form where a patient comes into the office once a week for 12 weeks for a treatment that's kind of like acupuncture that can help to modulate or encourage more normal bladder function, or there's actually an implantable device that can be considered as well, too. Um, bladder injection therapy utilizes botulinum toxin, which has a similar uh, mechanism of action to medications in that you're trying to relax the bladder to help hold a better capacity and reduce leakage. Um, there are a few things, uh, potential side effects to consider with that. It can increase your risk of infections temporarily and cause some difficulty emptying the bladder. So that's where doing some evaluation of bladder and bladder function, such as urodynamics, may be helpful to help a patient make a decision as to what is right for them. 
You also mentioned stress incontinence. How do you approach that treatment? So stress incontinence is not so much a functional problem as it is a mechanical problem. And so if somebody has failed conservative therapies for stress incontinence, then we're really looking at something to help provide better urethral support. Um, now that can be something like compressive devices, pessaries, or there is even some over-the-counter devices that patients can use to help them hold the urine into the bladder. Probably the most commonly um, known treatment for stress incontinence would be to do a sling-type surgery. And um, there has been a little bit of, of uh, press about that lately, but I can reassure you that um, it is a very safe, effective, widely utilized treatment for stress incontinence and can have a huge impact on a patient's quality of life. Well, in closing for our discussion today, what would be some key takeaways for our listeners regarding the treatment of incontinence within the female population? I think it's important to understand that not all incontinence is the same. And some patients may have a combination of both stress and overactive bladder or urge incontinence. It's important to understand what is bothersome to the patient and to utilize that to determine what treatments are offered. I think it's important to start with conservative therapies and then build on that. And really, how much we do to manage stress incontinence depends on the patient's degree of bother. And that's where it's important to develop a relationship with the patient and to determine what their goals are and um, base your treatment on that. Well, thank you so much for this discussion today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional.